Hello everyone. I welcome you to the First Baptist Church of Westfield Sunday Service. If you would, please turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 10 as we continue on through Isaiah. Um, Just a recap of last week, uh, we saw how God is using Assyria in order to bring judgment upon his people. But as we learned, that doesn't make Assyria not culpable for the evils that they may commit in the process. Um, And because of that, we saw how um, it started with this woe against Assyria, despite God saying, I'm going to use them for my purposes. Yet we find that Assyria is proud, that they have a lot of um, arrogance as to what it is that they're doing. And they think that all of their strength and all of their wisdom comes from themselves, when in the end, it's really God who is blessing them and giving them the ability to conquer as they have been. Um, And so we ended with verse 15, which said last week, Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it, as if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood? Um, And that kind of statement really puts it all into perspective in a way, that Assyria thinks that it's so great, but really in the end it's God who is great. And any nation or person even who thinks so highly of themselves is going to be brought down when they when their sin has come for judgment um so now we're going to come to verses 16 through 19 and we're going to see more okay what's happening and why all this is going on therefore the lord god of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire the light of israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few few, that a child can write them down. So because of the way in which Assyria has boasted in itself, they will receive judgment. It comes from the Lord God of hosts, a clear reminder for us as well as Assyria, who is really the sovereign. As such, he will send sickness to the Assyrian armies. Whether the burning is in reference to the wasting sickness or another form of judgment is unspecified in Isaiah. Still, Israel's light is the knowledge of God. Likewise, the Holy One is God. In this sense, it is God who becomes a fire and a destruction for the Assyrians. That the description of how quickly the judgment will come is emphasized as Assyria's thorns and briars will be burned up and devoured in one day. When Assyria fell to the Babylonians, it was certainly accomplished quickly. And one would even think, oh, in a blink of an eye, the Assyrians are gone and the Babylonians are now in control. Still, throughout Isaiah, we have seen reference to force and land as being metaphors for the people. In this sense, Assyria will face judgment which will destroy the nation, both soul and body. If the soul is represented as the being of the nation and the body represents its strength, then such an event does occur again when Assyria is felled by Babylon. Assyria will become so depopulated in their defeat that even a child could write down their numbers. Again, we see the result of Assyria's arrogance. Instead of recognizing their place under the sovereignty of God, they considered themselves as the true sovereigns. Such arrogance leads to judgment against the Assyrians, just as there was judgment against Israel and Judah for much of the same thing in a way. 
Now we come to verses 20 through 23. In that day, the remnant of Israel and survivors of the house of Jacob will be no more lean on him, will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will, will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Throughout Isaiah's ministry, there has been an expectation of a remnant to remain. As such, when the dust settles, there will come a time when the survivors, survivors will stop leaning on those who were merely obstacles to faithfulness. Instead, they will lean on God, again described as the Holy One of Israel, in truth. They will recognize Him in all of His glory and will no longer seek to, the help of mere men and human nations for their survival, but instead they will cling to God. There may, be, there may have been an understanding of the prophecy given to Abraham that his offspring will be as the sand of the sea. It is possible the people believed they were impenetrable because they were the offspring of Abraham. But true offspring of Abraham are not declared by their lineage but by faith. As such, though the people had grown numerous, the judgment which will come will be devastating because of their faithlessness. Thus, a remnant remains because of the judgment which comes. The judgment comes via righteousness. The people had been living in selfishness and injustice stemming from a lack of faith. As such, God has decreed that judgment will come upon his people for their disobedience to him. Yet the end is also decreed. In this sense, it is not only judgment, but also redemption for the remnant. It reminds us of the double meaning of the remnant statement. In one sense, it is negative. Only a remnant remains. In another, it is positive. Some do remain. In contrast to the judgment to fall on Assyria, in which they will be destroyed both body and soul, it shows a difference between the two nations and God's ultimate purpose in his judgments against these nations. Now we're going to read over 24 through 27. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in the very little while my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he, sh as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day his burden will depart from your shoulder, and his yoke from your neck. The yoke will be broken because of the fat. What should the people do in light of what is being told to them? The answer is to not be afraid of the Assyrians. They will come against the people, it's true. Their rod and staff will be a yoke similar to that which the Egyptians had placed on them. Why should they not be afraid, though? Well, the answer is because in the end, God's judgment against his people will be abated. And when that occurs, his anger will be against the Assyrians for what we have seen already. Though used by God in order to bring judgments, they will also face judgment for their own immorality. Assyria is certainly powerful historically, but in the end, when compared to God, they are nothing. Just as God had been victorious against the Midianites in the, brooks, in, in the book of Judges and the Egyptians in Exodus, so he will be victorious against the Assyrians. When all is said and done, the burden given by Assyria 
will be lifted. The yoke which had been such a weight to the people will be taken away. The way in which the yoke is broken is interesting, that it is because of the fat. The blessings which will occur will be so great that the judgment of the past and the experience with the, with the Assyrians will no longer seem that great um, compared to all the joy that will be happening to them in the future. Now we're going to come to verses 28 and continue on to 32. He has come to Aoth. He has passed through Megron. At Michmash, he stores his baggage. They have crossed over the pass. At Geba, they lodge for the night. Ramah trembles. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Cry aloud, O daughter of Galim. Give attention, O Lashay. O poor Anathoth. Madmena is in flight. The inhabitants of Geben flee for safety. This very day he will halt at Nob. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. So verses 28 through 32 express the Assyrians' threat in a kind of poetic way. They make their way ever onward through the nation, step by step, town by town. The Assyrians' conquest is coming. The people flee before them. The earth itself shakes. They are coming. They are coming. Then they are here. Outside of Jerusalem, the judgment has arrived. Now, it's interesting. I mean, another way to look at this for our own context, let's say in Westfield, it would be like some nation coming against us. Now they're in Lawrenceville. Now they're in Elkland and Osceola. Now they're in Knoxville. Now they're in Westfield. And you see this progress right through of this, whatever this enemy is coming against the people. Um, So it's really an interesting way to say it. Now we come to the end of the chapter, verses 33 and 34. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the bows with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. So the people are in Jerusalem, and Assyria is upon them. Surely this is doom which is to occur. And yet... God, again, described as the Lord God of hosts, the true sovereign of all the universe, will keep Assyria from totally destroying Jerusalem. Indeed, Assyria will be hewn down, a great imagery in light of the imagery used in verse 15, as Assyria was being used as God's axe. But we notice that it is not only the greatness of Assyria which will be crushed by God. It will also be the smaller thickets in the forests of Lebanon. God's judgment against the northern kingdom of Israel is going to be accomplished by the axe, it's true. But what we have learned is that the axe is nothing without God. As such, it comes full circle. The people do not need to fear the Assyrians because what is Assyria compared to God? So these verses close it out well. It reminds us that God is the great sovereign of the universe. Though Assyria is great, God is greater. Also, it shows how God is the ultimate judge. He is the judge not only of Israel and Judah, but of Assyria and the whole world as well. So the main point of these verses are to describe the destruction which will come upon Assyria because of their arrogance, pride, and the devastation which they bring, but also against God's people for their apostasy and all the ways in which they're living in injustice and immorality. Likewise, we learn how God will keep a remnant of his people despite their apostasy. Such a remnant will turn from their folly of trusting in great nations and turn toward God instead.
Still, there will be chastisement, as Assyria will come right up to the gates of Jerusalem. When it seems all is lost, though, we are reminded God is the judge not only of his people, but Assyria as well. And as such, he can bring about a remnant for his people, while at the same time ending the Assyrian nation as a whole. So as we acknowledge, last week there is this continued dichotomy um, between human free will and the sovereignty of God. Last week we delved into the depths of it, showing how it is possible for God to utilize human freedom in order to bring about his purposes within the world. This does not make God a slave to human freedom, but instead shows his incredible intelligence, wisdom, and power to bring about his desired purposes. So when we look at the promises of God here in the text, it should cause us to be confident that the promises are sure, that any promise he gives is sure. God has decreed that there will be a remnant. There will be those who do turn to him instead of turning toward other means for their security. For this, we should rejoice knowing that this is what came to pass, especially in light of Christ. But we also want to be aware of the circumstances. The people of Israel also often assumed that because they were of a particular lineage, they would be blessed. This is, in a way, a dangerous belief, one which John the Baptist criticized during his ministry. Remember in Matthew 3, he says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to, be, to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones, to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And that's Matthew 3, 7-10. through 10. Now in Matthew, we are told it is the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In Luke 3, when uh, we see more of John the Baptist there as well, we learn that it is not just to them John proclaimed this, but it actually says he told this to the crowds in general. Still, the point remains. Lineage is not enough. Even if one were to be a child of Abraham, it is not enough to receive the blessings which Abraham had been promised. The law itself attests to this. We are told in the law that those who disobey the law will be chastised, with the ultimate judgment being the people will be expunged from the land. This is seen especially in Deuteronomy 28. Again, the warning is clear. Judgment will come for those who choose to live in sin, but for those who turn in repentance and faith, there is deliverance. There is hope. Salvation is an act of God given to the people despite themselves. People will continue to sin, yet that faith leads to redemption, which leads to sanctification. The law itself prescribes reconciliation in sacrifice. Faith will lead them to reconciliation precisely because it is by faith they would make sacrifices, trusting in God's grace and his word to deliver them from judgment should they remain obedient. For the people, salvation is by faith precisely because faith led the people to trust in God. So it is the same with us. Faith leads us to God and his salvation. It is not our work to bring salvation. It is by faith the promise of salvation is given to us by God. And this faith leads us to trust that whatever directives he has given us for our lives will lead to the ultimate good for ourselves and for this world. Though we may not always understand how this comes to fruition, uh, 
We know God and trust in his wisdom. Yet the warning is clear. For if we do not have faith in God, then we will find ourselves placing our faith elsewhere. We will be like the Assyrians, trusting in ourselves, believing by our own might we have success in this life, not recognizing God's blessing on us. We will be like the Israelites, the northern tribes, trusting they could rise like the phoenix out of the ashes, stronger than before, but in truth they could not. Or we could be like the Judeans even, trusting in other powers for our success um, rather than simply placing our faith in God. While this occurs, or when this occurs actually, oppression, violence, and judgment occur as well. If we do not remain a people who remain in repentance and faith, then the consequences are catastrophic for us and society. Some might wonder about the church though. For in the church we are guaranteed salvation in Christ, should we believe. This is true, and no less true than the ancient Israelites, who were guaranteed salvation in faithfulness to God. But there is also truth in the lack of repentance on the part of the faithful will show us to not be faithful at all. It is one thing to claim Jesus with our lips. It is quite another to give him lordship over all of who we are. It is one thing to come to church on Sundays, worshiping God on Sunday. It is quite another to offer up all of our lives to him in worship. God demands the latter. He demands all of us and will not accept the former that is just pieces of us. We find as much in Romans 11 and 12. In Romans 11, Paul warns the Gentile Christians to not boast in their salvation, but instead to boast in God and his grace by continuing in faith. He says, Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And that's Romans eleven nineteen through 22. Now, how does Paul then describe those who continue in God's kindness? I mean, he talks about being in God's kindness and remaining God's, God's kindness. Well, he describes them in the very next chapter, Romans 12, 1, uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, Paul has a memory of the people of Israel. He knows that they had fallen into arrogance. They had begun to believe only half the truth, the truth that they were descendants of Abraham, but the untruth that they therefore did not need to heed the word. We need to be cautious to not fail into the same kind of trap. We fall into that trap when we believe it is enough to pray a prayer to ask Jesus into our hearts and then never live a life of repentance. We fall into that trap when we justify our lack of repentant lifestyles with growing up in the church or the Christian home and thinking that was enough. Um, We fall into the trap when we forget the past, ignoring the admonition and the warnings of the ancients who were God's people, 
but still failed and were judged for their lack of faithfulness and obedience. We fall into the trap when we ignore the scriptures, claiming them to be for a time long past, rather than recognizing them to to be for the faithful until all has been accomplished. Again, these things do not mean that our salvation rests upon us. It is instead an acknowledgement that true salvation from God is not minor, but arches over all of our lives, encompassing all of our lives. Again, God doesn't want pieces or parts. He wants the whole. As such, we rejoice in this God who is sovereign over all things and praise him for his work of salvation through Jesus Christ. And we recognize that apart from him, we would all be living in darkness were it not for his great grace. So it is true that there is a remnant. But how much better would it be if there were not a remnant but the whole? How much more significant would it be if it wasn't a discussion of a remnant implying judgment is coming and instead the people as a whole coming under faithfulness to God? We rejoice in the talk of a remnant of believers, but we also recognize the heartache that comes in the fact that a remnant means so much is lost because of faithlessness. Be admonished and encouraged then to learn from their mistakes and to not fall into the same traps that they had fallen into. Instead, continue on in faithfulness to God, recognizing God's kindness and grace given to us, that we could be a people transformed by the mighty power of God for his glory. He is worthy of all praise, for his power extends to us, bringing us from death to life. And so... In this, we see how the gospel plays a part, how Jesus Christ plays a part. Um, And the gospel, it all begins with our origins, that we are all created in the image of God, that God is the first cause of the universe, and by his will, his choice, he made humanity to bear his image, which means that we all have dignity, sanctity, and worth to life. No matter the person, no matter who they are, they have the image of God implanted on them, no matter what their age or how young or old, male or female, in the end, all have this on them and all have dignity to their lives. But then we have the problem. We have the same problem that we see in regards to the people of Israel and Judah and the Assyrians, is that sin happens. And when sin occurs in our lives, it causes us to live in ways which are disjointed with how God wanted us to live in his image. And instead of seeking to glorify God with our lives, we seek to be the gods of life. And because of this, it leaves us to be people who live in immorality, injustice, who seek oppression, and who continue to believe that we are the kings and the queens of this whole universe that we experience. And this is how sin disjoins us again. This is the way that sin really messes with us in our minds. To not recognize that while we are greatly made, we are also finite and we are also made, um, made itself. We are not the creators, we are the created. But then that leaves us with a question. And that is, if we do sin and we do deserve judgment, if we're no different than the Assyrians who thought so high and mighty of themselves, or the Israelites who thought so much of themselves, or the Judeans who recognized their weakness at least, but then turned towards something else other than God, 
And if we continue to do these things and we sin and we are deserving of judgment just as they were, then what hope is there? Well, the hope rests in the fact that God does still have a remnant. That despite their wickedness, despite their immorality, and despite all the poor choices that they made, God still kept some for himself. And we see how he has done this in the person of Jesus Christ. It is through Jesus Christ that through his life, death, and resurrection in time, space, history, and flesh that we find redemption. And a remnant of people who belong solely to God, who choose to live for God, and who seek to glory in God, not in themselves. And you know what happens? It's so wonderful to hear is that we are no longer created beings under Christ. Instead, we become adopted sons and daughters of God himself, as we learn in Romans 9. And that's a wonderful thing. It's amazing to consider the redemption found in Christ. It's amazing to consider the fact that despite being worthy of judgment, he should save us by faith. And this faith, it leads somewhere. It leads us to then live in a way which is good, truly good. And we know it's good because it's given to us by God. His spirit within us, urging us forward in love, patience, kindness, and all the wonderful gifts. But in all of this, it requires God to do something, which he has done. And then with our freedom of will, we are able to choose to follow after him because he has changed us. And it's the power of the gospel message itself that does this. And so we rejoice. We rejoice because we know that God is a good God who judges. That's something to rejoice in. But we also know that God is a God who saves. And we rejoice in both. And so as we move forward, we recognize that God is leading us somewhere and that's further into his glory. And we rejoice in all of these things. Because God is truly worthy of all of our lives. And so we continue to pursue God. Continue to love him with all of our hearts, minds, souls, and strength. And as we do, we will know that we are honoring he who created us. And all of the darkness that we have done is washed away by the blood of Christ. And in the end, it leads again to glory. A kingdom eternal. His kingdom, which we get to enter into by the blood of Christ. So, let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you have accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you so much that you have created us to bear your image, that you have given us a freedom of will. But we also know, Lord, that we are in desperate need to be transformed by the power of your word, through the proclamation of the gospel, by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we ask that you would transform us by the gospel, that we would not seek transformation which can come from any other source but you, and that we would trust in you, knowing that you are leading us not into ways which are into darkness, but into light, into goodness itself, because you are good. So, Lord, we thank you for all that you have accomplished through your Son. And we thank you so much for the prophets of old who remind us what it means to follow after you. We ask, Lord, that you would give us the strength and the wisdom to continue forward. And in your Son's name we pray. Amen.
I thank you for joining us on this Sunday, and I pray that you have a wonderful and blessed week in the Lord. God bless everyone. Take care.